if your cat wants to say anything, uh, you can say it now. He got bored. <laughs> he took off. <laughs> yeah. Nobody in my family likes to hear me talk about this. <laughs> Cats or drafting? Drafting. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Today, it's uh, Andrew, myself, and we are talking about maybe one of our probably top three favorite topics of conversation, and that is uh, a specific aspect of aerodynamic drag, drafting. Now, we've covered drafting in one form or another uh, a couple of times on the show. Um, In fact, our third episode was all about drafting. But uh, it's been more than a year since we aired that one, and it's definitely worth a revisit. And actually what spurred us on was uh, an article that Michael Lynn sent us, who is a fan of the show, uh, a supporter and a a listener, and he sends me things from time to time to take a look at. And this was an article by Alex Hutchinson in Outside Magazine about drafting in running. So we'll touch a little bit on that article and uh, we'll kind of spiral off from there into uh, cycling aerodynamics as well. And of course, we'll uh, we'll post a link to that article as well if you want to check it out. Everything that Alex writes is, is worth reading in my opinion. Spiraling is a good word for a lot of our discussion topics. We tend to go off on <laughs> tangents. So Andrew, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the running? Uh, well, why don't we start with talking what actually causes drag. So I think, um, like we did cover this in the previous episode, but I think it's just, uh, I wanted to say relapse, but we'll treat this as a reboot episode where we (laughs) kind of is a relapse (laughs) a little bit. Yeah. I think the, the important thing for us was that because this was an early episode for us, it didn't necessarily get as much attention because we didn't have as many listeners, uh, being our third episode. So I think it's something that could be a bit of a hidden gem. And to be honest, I just like talking about this stuff. So it was another good excuse to geek out about drafting and aerodynamics. So <laughs> drag itself, um, I think most cyclists have, are while they've heard the term, they're probably familiar with what it feels like. Uh, for example, when you've got a headwind and you really got to push to maintain that, that given speed that you're trying to go for um, versus having a tailwind when it feels like you're absolutely flying. So the, uh, the real question is, where does drag come from? And it does delve into a bit of a complex topic here, but there's basically in the simplest sense, there's two components of drag that we're looking at. So there's uh, pressure drag, which is basically having a higher pressure on one side of an object than another. And then there's skin or viscous drag. And that's basically you're dragging the fluid along with you. So the way I describe this typically is if you stick your hand out the window uh, when you're driving driving a car. Um, if you stick it out the window of your house, you may not feel this much, but, uh, when you're, (laughs) this is very windy. Yeah, it could be. It is here. I can tell you that. Um, but if you stick the, you stick your hand out the window of a car while you're driving and you rotate it so that it's, uh, facing forward. So the, the palm of your hand or either side is facing towards the front of the car. Um, you'll feel a pretty significant amount of drag or amount of force on your hand. And what's happening there is the front side of your hand has all this, these air molecules impacting it and builds up the pressure there because it's trying to spread out and redirect the airflow. And on the back side, there's 
a lack of air molecules hitting your hand. So you get higher pressure on the surface, on the front surface than you do on the back surface. And basically, if you take this difference between the two pressures, um, you end up with a, an amount of resolved force. So you could get into the math about just integrating pressure over area, uh, which I'd be happy to discuss, but I think <laughs> maybe that's going a little too deep, going off on the spiraling that we mentioned. Uh, but the, the the drag force actually comes from that uh, that total force that you're experiencing um, from while well, the pressure drag force comes from that, uh, the difference in pressure. So if you have a very high pressure on one side, and a very low pressure on the other, you'll have a very, very significant force. Um, but if you manage to essentially capture the energy of the flow and redirect it to the back surface, that's essentially what streamlining is. Because now we're bringing the rearward pressure, which is pressing in the opposite direction, closer to what the, um, the forward pressure is. And that's the effect of streamlining. So even though uh, if you look at something like an airfoil, it's, uh, it's this teardrop shape, it has a fairly high pressure, um, depending on the shape, it has a fairly high pressure on the leading edge. And you can still get very low drag because you're recovering the pressure. You're, you're not leading to flow separation and uh, irreversible losses. So where you get um, basically the, the energy of the flow is lost. So it's... Um, yeah, it's a big part of aerodynamics. It's why certain shapes are very high drag. So if you have cylinders or if you have flat plates, that contributes a significant amount of drag because you're not able to recover the, the pressure on the back surface. So using the hand analogy, um, the, the next thing you can do is rotate your hand so that it's parallel to the flow. And that's a reduction both of the frontal area, but it's also a bit of a streamlining because now you don't have this blunt object. It's more of a, a flat plate that you're, um, that you're presenting to the wind. And the amount of drag will be significantly lower um, when you do it this way. So, and that's just, uh, just a comparison of frontal area as well. But um, in that case, you actually have, uh, I don't know the exact contribution, but it'd be a larger contribution of viscous drag and viscous drag is the other main contributor to drag. So if you imagine taking, uh, just looking around my desk here, <laughs> taking a ruler and sticking it into molasses. Um, I have a ruler on my desk, not molasses, just to be clear on that. <laughs> but if, I was hoping you'd have both. <laughs> yeah, it's just my morning cup of molasses that I use. <laughs> it's high <laughs> iron, um, apparently. So oh, I didn't know that. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the molasses, for example, would be a great example of, of a very viscous fluid. So it's very thick and it's, uh, it grabs onto the surface. It doesn't like to be sheared, which is what is ultimately what results in this viscous drag. So the, the great example of this would be just if you pull it out, um, it's going to be a huge amount of force. So we don't have any pressure drag or we don't have much pressure drag where there's a difference in force on the ruler, but the viscous drag is huge. Um, and you know, if you have a cup of molasses or thick oil or something like really, really thick oil, then if you pull it out fast enough, it, the force could be large enough to lift the entire cup. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's the, the polar opposite of what we're used to experiencing with air. Um, and a lot of people, they consider air as being something that doesn't really exist necessarily. Like you can't feel it that clearly. It's not like being in water. Um, but it's still there. It still acts exactly the same way that molasses or uh, water would work or oil or whatever. Um, but it's just operating in a different scale. And this is where um, another favorite topic of mine, non-dimensional numbers come in. 
Um, so I will not delve into non-dimensional numbers though. Cause I think the, uh, the I'm going to try to steer you back on the, uh, you know, uh, into, uh, the slipstream of our, of our topic today. Oh, I like what you did there. <laughs> yes. Um, but the, the short answer there is you can actually scale fluids so that you could compare water in the same way that you could compare molasses or you could compare uh, air or something like that, or even a, a less viscous fluid. But uh, the, the main point being there's these two components of drag. So as a cyclist, the majority of what we feel is pressure drag, and that's basically having this air impacting us and then not being able to refill our wakes. Um, and the wake is what ultimately leads to drafting. So describe that term wake yeah. before we go on, Andrew. What, is that, what do you mean when you say wake? What does it look like or not look like, but what, what is it and uh, how does it impact us? So the, the wake itself is basically where you've removed energy from the flow. So you've... Um, uh, I'm going to make you say that in, uh, in more layman's terms. Uh, so a good analogy that, that I like is if you're following a truck on the highway, um, if, as soon as you pull behind the truck, if you're very close... Uh, you will feel there's less wind noise. You get a little bit of buffeting or um, yeah, side force that comes out of it because of something called vortex shedding. But um, but in general, your the the airflow the energy has been being removed from the airflow, and then it uh, leads to an area of low velocity behind it. So if you can imagine an object traveling through the air or in a wind tunnel, for example, is kind of the easier analogy for people to imagine where you've got high speed air coming all around you. And then right behind the object, you've got this area of low speed and it's, uh, it's basically, you could hide in that area. So if you're following a truck on the highway, you can feel that when you're driving, if you're in the snow or in the rain, you can often see it where it's kicking up spray and it's actually recirculating, sometimes bringing it back towards the truck, hmm. uh, which means the 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 spray or the snow particles um flakes as most people would call them i guess but uh the snowflakes could be brought uh faster than the velocity of the object that's moving forward um just because of that the wake dynamics there so um let's maybe hit people over the head with this but why is this important to cyclists and to runners um given that you know let's, let's talk a little bit about how much of the energy the power either way, required for forward motion is used in overcoming aerodynamic drag on, uh, on a flat surface, not, not climbing or descending. So the faster you go, the bigger component it is. Um, so really, it depends on how fast you are. If you're not moving very quickly, then it's not as significant, which is why you don't see, um, <laughs> why you don't see mountain bikers wearing tights. Um, but I think there's also some style component there where they actually have a bit of fashion sense and most triathletes <laughs> or road cyclists don't mind, yeah. you know, getting everything strapped tightly to them. But the, uh, the aerodynamics definitely do become more important as you go faster and they, they grow at the power required grows at the cube of your speed. so if you double your speed, you get eight times as much drag, which is a huge amount. That's huge. Yeah. So yeah. going from 10 kilometers an hour to 40 kilometers an hour, you're doubling twice. So that's, uh, you, going to 20, you'd get, um, eight times what you'd have at, um, 10 and then going to 40 where you're doubling that again, you get eight times eight. So 64 times as much drag at 40 kilometers an hour as you would have at 10 kilometers an hour. Um, yeah, that's crazy. But you would only have, uh, four times as much rolling resistance because that's more or less linear. 
So that one, uh, that, that really drives it home for people. So 64 times increase in drag going from 10 kilometers an hour to 40 kilometers an hour. So it becomes much, much more important as you go faster. And this is the reason that for fuel economy, you know, a lot of recommendations are to drive a little bit slower than when you're on the highway going 130 or 140 kilometers an hour, you're actually driving up those aerodynamic losses quite a bit. So mm-hmm. it, uh, it does contribute quite a bit in that sense. And the same for cyclists. If you think of fuel economy being the amount of power that you need to, to go a certain distance or the amount of energy you re- require to go a certain distance, um, it goes up very quickly. So when, when you are riding, um, if you're going about 40 kilometers an hour for um, just this average rider, well, not an average rider, pretty good CDA of 0.215 is what I calculated, um, you need about 240 watts to go 40 kilometers an hour. 30 watts of that is required to overcome rolling resistance and the remainder, so about 210 watts, is required for aerodynamics. So you're, you're dealing with about just over 10% of your total drag for, uh, for rolling resistance and the remainder is aerodynamics. And what about things like drivetrain drag? Those are pretty minimal at those, at those kind of powers, yeah? Yeah. At those speeds. Do you mean like friction losses or... Friction losses in the drivetrain, yeah. Yeah, so those those are two percent, give or take. Um, I know we did that talk previously. Thirty your chain is right. <laughs> yeah. So for the average triathlete who does not maintain their bike, where um, <laughs> it sounds like a rock tumbler when you're riding, um, that's it, it. Can be quite high, and I know we did this discussion previously on it, where especially with a one by drivetrain, you can have up to what was it like. In, in the worst case with cross-chaining, you'd be like almost a 10%. Like six. Yeah, six or 8%, I remember. But yeah. it could have been even as high as then. And uh, listeners, we're, we're working on getting a real expert on uh, drivetrain drag on the show. I know it's kind of a, maybe a little bit of a niche um, niche topic, and I know I'm, I'm leaving the slipstream. But um, it's it is it's totally free speed, you know. Keep your you know keep your shit clean, and it's you go faster. It's it's very straightforward, and those you know those two percent three percent gains start to add up, especially when you know worst case scenario is upwards of ten percent, which is huge. Well, for me, putting it in perspective, I recently did an FTP test, and my FTP actually has finally gone up, and it went up by three percent, and that feels like a huge win. So knowing that I could spend ten minutes and clean my chain. And get the equivalent of you know dozens or possibly hundreds of hours worth of training work. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's a pretty easy argument right there. So, or you could do both and then be even faster. Yes, it's not it's not an either or. It's a it's a and exactly because if your competitors are doing it, you don't want to be the one not doing it. One hundred percent. Sorry, let's go. Ba- let's get back to drafting. Yes. So drafting uh, before this digression uh we were talking about <laughs> you were talking yeah. about your your very aerodynamic triathlete at 0.215 uh for context folks um 0.215 would be a very like a well optimized very well optimized male uh athlete um somebody like cody cody's probably a little bit fat a little bit lower than that yeah he's he's a bit lower but again he's he's quite tall so if, He's he's in a good position. I think he's around point two oh five somewhere around there. Okay. Um, yeah. What was really eye opening was talking to Kurt a few episodes ago from Cycling oh, Canada, hearing that some of the uh, the quite tall, quite powerful male athletes were able to get into the point one sixes, point one sevens, and some of the the female athletes were like point one four, which is I didn't even know that number was possible. So 
<laughs> yeah, it's that's it, it, that blew my mind too. Like, I mean, how much are we? How much are we still leaving on the table? That is, that is a in very good of, in terms of optimization. That's that's always like wow. If you can get, I mean, yeah, you got these guys are phenomenal athletes and they put out ridiculous power numbers. But how do they they pretzel themselves into the position that that cuts drag by by such an extent? Because if you think about, let's look at you know point one six compared to. 0.215, which is which is already very very good. My my own uh, CDA that I can hold comfortably for long distance is around two four five. So uh, one six is is exactly two thirds of two four, right? So these these people are, you know, the the male track athletes who definitely know, you know, their their legs are no smaller than mine. Um, they are, you know, their drag is two thirds of my drag. Uh, their their CDA is two thirds of my CDA, so that's they're so much more aerodynamically efficient than I. Am. And your power is probably two thirds of their power. So exactly, they but that they, they, <laughs> they <laughs> yeah, they operate in opposite directions. So <laughs> yes, big CDA bad, big low power also bad. Yeah, well, there's a reason they're going to the Olympics. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's uh, it is really interesting to look at the different components of the different contributions that people have. But in general, I think around eighty five percent of your drag is for a good rider. That's that's usually where it'll be. Um, but uh, it, it does give us a line in the sand that we can use for comparison. So um, so that's that's kind of what you're working with as a baseline. So drafting. What is drafting? Well, the the idea is that you. You're, you're having lower velocity air impact you. So when it contributes to this pressure on your front surface, because it's starting off with lower energy or lower, um, yeah, lower, lower velocity, which contributes to a lower pressure on the surface, you can have basically a smaller difference in pressure across the front and rear surface. So if you imagine you're fully tucked in behind a truck, uh, when you're driving your car, then the there's basically going to be no air movement around you. So the the front and rear pressures will be almost identical, which means you only have rolling resistance as a contributor. Um, so that would be the extreme case where basically you have zero aerodynamic drag and all of your drag would therefore just be rolling resistance, which means you could, um, well, if you're only doing 30 watts going 40 kilometers an hour, um, that seems like a good <laughs> trade-off for me. That's a win, and that's why you see those those uh, land speed records for cycling. They have those; the, they're shrouded um, by a, a moving, well, a, a vehicle in front with a with a giant shroud. And that that those are the folks that end up. I don't know how fast they go. I, I should have looked this up, but they're in the, I think, like two hundred kilometer an hour range yeah, on a bike on a flat. I think um, so. I'd actually spoken to I can't remember her name offhand, but uh, she holds it's not even like a men's or women's record. I think it's just the overall person record, and it's something like one hundred and sixty miles an hour. Uh, oh wow! Which okay. so if you're just contributing uh, rolling resistance, that actually becomes very high at one hundred and sixty miles an hour. <laughs> so there's, yeah, yeah, that that's where all her power is going. And there's other considerations like the the dynamics of a bike. Like bikes are not designed to go that fast, so you need this special drivetrain. There's actually a tremendous amount of energy just stored in the wheel as a flywheel, um, hmm. and it just uh, braking becomes extremely difficult. Um, everything becomes extremely difficult at those speeds. But um, fortunately for us, we're nowhere near that fast. And 
when when you are drafting another rider, you can still, even though it's not a truck, you can still get a pretty significant benefit in terms of the overall drag. Um, so I did a few calculations here. And just for a point of comparison, this was using actually old models I had of Alex Vanderlinden, who's uh, a good friend of ours. Um, so he, when he was drafting himself, was uh, at two meters of following distance, he was at about 65% uh, of his overall drag. So that means he had reduced it by about 35%. Mm -hmm. At five meters, it's about 73% of his total drag or his normal drag. At 10 meters, it's 85. At 12, 89. And 20 is 98. So even at 20 meters, like 2% reduction in drag is not insignificant. So right. that's that's a good indication that, um, that, hey, you know, there's a reason that pros try and follow as closely as they can in triathlons, where often the, the drafting limits are either 12 or 20 meters, depending on the race. Right. Um, yeah. So that's, that's a really important consideration that even, or really important takeaway rather that even at 12 meters, there could be significant benefits to following at that, you know, ma minimal legal distance. But Andrew, there was an important caveat that, uh, we talked about, you talked about last time that I definitely want you to touch on about this is the ideal condition that almost never exists in real life. Can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, so how many people have ridden during a perfectly wind-free day? And I think the answer is generally not many. Like it's, you can have very low winds, but having zero wind at all is extremely rare. And this is the zero wind case. So it's not to say that this, you can't get some component of this otherwise, but uh, what, what happens is you get this crosswind effect where your wake essentially follows your overall velocity. So if, you're, if you've got a bit of a crosswind, it'll essentially blow the wake off the road mm -hmm. um, or across the oncoming traffic lane. So either of those are probably not the fastest way to go, or at least not the safest way to go. <laughs> um, so you, to, to take full advantage of this, especially at the long distances, um, you need to really have the perfect conditions. So, and it just happens so infrequently um, that it is a very low likelihood of, of contributing a lot to a race. So what Andrew's saying is um, if you're following at 12 meters, which for most races, uh, and he did say that there are some that are 20, but I think they're, they're very much in the minority. I, I think, um, I think the, um, one of the, uh, one of the UAE races uh, is 20 meters. I forget which one. The Challenge Championship, they were looking at 20 meters. Okay. Um, and that was actually something that a lot of the pros really liked. So I remember Lionel Sanders, who's uh, not known for being overly outspoken. Um, so sarcasm in case you didn't get that. But uh, <laughs> he, he's, he was very much in favor of that rule because it does help break up the pack. Um, so for someone like Lionel, who's usually a very strong rider, he doesn't want people hooking in and following him. Um, and he's, yep. he's able to, to pull away on his own. But there's weaker pros out there who do need that, that advantage of even the 12-meter draft where they can cut their drag just that little bit or they can keep a higher speed um, by being that 12-meter distance you know, for the same power output um, that they might not be able to maintain otherwise. Yeah, so getting back to this side wind um, case that Andrew mentioned, if you can, folks, if you can picture a rider with a long wake streaming behind him or her, and if there's 
any kind of wind that's coming in from the side, that wake's going to be shifted, as Andrew mentioned. And obviously, you can imagine that the further somebody is following, you know, the less the wake needs to shift for you to completely miss it if you're directly on their, you know, on their six o'clock. So at 12 meters, even though if you were if you were right in the wake, you would have a benefit. Finding that wake becomes more complicated. And at 20 meters, which is kind of the maximum um, potential drafting distance, um, Andrew mentioned that you're you're seeing 98% of your your own draft, so very very minimal savings. And the likelihood that you're catching that wake is is really quite small at that point too. Yeah, exactly. So it it really does indicate there, well, there's a combination of like having the right conditions as well as just having the overall advantage. So with a shorter draft distance, five meters, for example, um, you can get up to around a 25% drag reduction. But uh, the key part is that it's a lot easier to find that wake, and it's a lot uh, a lot more realistic to find that wake on on the road and in real race conditions. Uh, and this is borne out perfectly when you look at uh, like tour stages where there's a crosswind and they form these echelons. And they actually, there's some interesting uh, team dynamics at play where they position themselves on the road so that uh, another team might not be able to catch in the wake. Mm. So they'll move over so that all of their riders can catch the wake and reduce their energy input, but a competitive team that they want to drop will not be able to, otherwise they'd be riding in the gravel. So, um, so it, it is interesting because that, that's quite often used as a very tactical maneuver. And it, it does help break up the some of the flat stages that would otherwise just be a large pack. Speaking of tactical maneuvers, uh, I remember when we did this, when we had this conversation the first time uh, over a year ago now, uh, there was a, the reason we, we, we wanted to have it is because there was something that was, um, something that was happening to me in races that I couldn't quite explain. Or I mean, I had a hunch and I asked you to, to run the numbers on the hunch. I think that's, it's still a very, well, it's no less important today, even though we're not racing now <laughs> than, it, than it was a year ago. And I do want to touch upon that. And that is the potential benefit for an age group athlete who is uh, not, a, not a very strong swimmer relative to their cycling. So I'm putting my, my hand up right here. Um, so in this, in, this case, in this case study, this athlete, let's call him me, uh, would come out of the water relatively far back compared with my ending position, my, my final position in the, in the standings, which means that, um, over the course of the bike leg, I have the opportunity to pass uh, a whole bunch of people. So the, when, what was, so what was happening in these races, especially long course races is that I was seeing that my, my speed, um, over the course of the bike leg was atypically high when compared to my power. So that would lead me to believe that something was going on with, with my aerodynamics. Like I was somehow becoming more aerodynamic over the course of these races than I was in training. And, um, that's just, it, it didn't, it didn't make sense. Even when I was testing my, my aerodynamics in, in training, when I was being really diligent about my position and trying to control what I could control, uh, I was, not as aerodynamic as I was in races where, you know, you have to pop your head up out of position to look at people, you know, make sure you're not, you're not running into somebody. You have to grab bottles, you have to drink, you have to do all of these things that disrupt airflow and, uh, and wreck aerodynamic drag. So how could I be, how could it be that I was more aerodynamic in a race than in testing even? Um, so I kind of had a hunch and, uh, it sounds like it could be borne out. Yeah. It's a very interesting point. And it's something that only, 
well, should only affect age group athletes um, because of some of the rules. But you can you can legally draft um, as long as you don't stay in that draft zone for it depends on the the jurisdiction in the race. But it's around what is it thirty seconds somewhere around there twenty seconds usually twenty seconds to pass. And as long as you execute the pass in that amount of time, and as long as you don't drop back from the draft zone as soon as, or after you enter it. Um, meaning you have to complete the pass, then that is a legal maneuver. And that's something that you can take advantage of. And you see it quite often with car racing where they perform these slingshot maneuvers where they're drafting. And once they get close, they build up a ton of overspeed. And then they just launch themselves past the the car that they're trying to get by. Um, cyclists do exactly the same thing. So it's uh, it, it is a very interesting dynamic and you get this overspeed effect where say you maintain your same power, you can, um, you can take advantage of this overspeed and essentially launch yourself past the person. So if, if this person is going roughly at the same speed as you, then, uh, in effect, passing this person would be, um, putting yourself say 40 meters up the road compared to where you were before. So this is insane. Yeah. And, and it sounds like, you know, it sounds like a big distance, but putting it in terms of time, if you're going 40 kilometers an hour, which is about, uh, 12 meters per second, um, that's three and a half seconds per Per pass, basically. Yeah. Um, so if if you're passing and you're fully taking advantage of these passes, um, yeah, that's the idealized pass, right? Like that's if you're if you're you know in their slipstream and the slipstream is perfect, it's not deformed by the wind, <laughs> and then you 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 get out from their slipstream just about when you're about to bump wheels, basically. Yeah. So th- three and a half seconds uh, for one athlete. Um, that's that's good. But if you're passing, say, if, if you're in a race with 2000 people and you're passing a thousand of them, um, a thousand times three seconds <laughs> is a lot yeah. of time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've ever passed a thousand people, but there's definitely a lot of, you know, for me, you know, my swims are, like I said, my swims are pretty average. Uh, I won't be maybe middle of the pack, but I'll be kind of, you know, maybe in the, the 30th percentile or the 35th percentile. Um, and then, you know, after the bike, I'm considerably higher than that. And part of it is because I get to pass a lot of people. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's something that you can really leverage and you can take advantage of. So I actually, I've had mixed results with this, but, uh, in the Ironman races I've done, I've actually seated myself a little bit further back for a number of reasons. We've discussed it kind of ad nauseum. But you're, but you're also uh, like considerably a stronger swimmer than I am, Andrew. So you get you get less of a benefit from this than I would. Yeah, uh, there was some some form of strategy there. Like I said, some of it kind of backfired where I ended up too far back in the pack. Um, but these are all on self-seated races as well as opposed to pack starts. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the important point being that say you have 200 athletes to pass, which is not unreasonable for a self-seated race totally um you could save upwards of 10 minutes if you fully leverage each pass so that's you know on a half iron man leg that's hugely significant yeah that's a ridiculous amount of time. on an iron man leg that's still pretty big well an iron man like maybe you're passing twice as many people because you've that, got twice that's the also time true passing. yeah um, but it does tend to accordion out a little bit where the people who just generally are faster than you or are taking advantage of this effect as well they'll continue to stay ahead of you. So you don't necessarily catch everyone that way. But, um, but if you're shaving 10 minutes off your time, like that's enough to, I, I would stand up and take notice of that. If my time was 10 minutes faster than I was anticipating. Yeah. I don't think it was ever 10 minutes, but it was kind of, you know, in the five to seven minute range. We'd be like, this doesn't, you know, this, 
this kind of this power to speed my speed mm -hmm. was higher you know based on uh, based on the yeah, if if you're if you're shaving time, then that means your speed's increasing, right? That's it's a fairly straightforward for, uh, straightforward formula. <laughs> Distance over time. That's yeah. So the, the effect that's actually happening there is that as you get closer to a rider, you reduce your drag more and more. So for example, if you're going along just at your normal power, you're not modifying anything. You enter someone's wake, say twenty meters back, and you'll you'll get that little bit of benefit. So you get like you know you start off at a two percent benefit in terms of drag. Then as you get closer, um, like you're starting to accelerate already. So you, you make up for that 2% and you might hit a steady state kind of as you're going. Uh, but as you get closer, that contribution becomes bigger, which means you can accelerate further and further. And for some of these calculations I was doing, the baseline speed was 40 kilometers an hour. But when you're executing the pass, you would be going 43 or 44 kilometers an hour oh, wow. um, purely through just the acceleration due to drafting. And the uh, the effect actually carries on after you've completed the pass because if you still continue to maintain the same power, you've got this overspeed and you've got an imbalance of forces. So you'll slowly decelerate, but it'll take you a while to decelerate where you could go 10 meters up the road and get that extra distance from this person. And theoretically, they're supposed to drop back out of the draft zone as well. That doesn't affect, it doesn't improve your position, but it uh, it does help you, in theory, get ahead of people. I found that very few people adhere to that rule, but, uh, that's my own personal finding. So, uh, but yeah, 43 or 44 kilometers an hour, that's starting to get to like 10% increase in speed. So if you do that over the course of a 20 second pass going 10% faster for 20 seconds, that's, uh, it sounds like a video game where you get kind of, you know, a speed boost button or something <laughs> like a Mario Kart. Exactly. Yeah. Except no turtle shells in this, hopefully no turtle shells. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's 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 dramatic, and that's something I think you know I would encourage folks to to try, especially if they're you know of the of the aquatically challenged variety <laughs> like me. Aquatically challenged. I think everyone's aquatically challenged right now. I don't know if anyone can swim, or very few people can swim. <laughs> yeah, everyone's yeah, it's it's a more level playing field. So the the way that I usually approach um, training for my triathlons is I'll start swimming two weeks before the race. And I think everyone's kind of in that boat, except there are no races. So I think even more so everyone's in the same boat. They may amend the Ironman rules to allow wetsuits plus water wings. <laughs> I'll have to take, I'll have to get one of those, like one of those James Bond submersible, um, you know, uh, powered, <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know what you would call it, a little mini torpedo to push me along. Uh, it'll be interesting when we get back to the the water and back to racing. But um, well, people are swimming now. I mean, in uh, yeah, in true. Ontario, uh, the lakes are have warmed up. It's been it's been very warm. Even Lake Ontario is warm enough to uh, to swim in now. So people are, are are back to swimming. It's just you know we don't have any opportunities really to put that swim training to the test. Well, you're luckier than I am, and you've been having much nicer weather as well. That's true. Andrew, why don't we jump to the uh, to that article that uh, Alex uh, wrote? Yeah, yeah, uh, about the the drafting effect in running. So uh, obviously, as you've been listening to to what we're talking about here, um, you appreciate the fact that the faster you go, the the greater the magnitude of the drafting effect. So for cycling, it is very very real, and there's a, a huge performance benefit to be had from drafting. With running, the question has been kind of out as to how 
what the magnitude of the effect is because for obviously runners even the kipchogis of the world go a lot slower than than even very ordinary cyclists so how much of an effect does uh does drafting make in running and this is what uh, alex's article was all about uh and it was there were some interesting studies that came out of this yeah so i think the interesting thing for running is uh, like you said first of all the speeds are a lot lower uh, which means the aerodynamic drag is a lot lower. But assuming you have the same metabolic output at your maximum speed or at your threshold speed, um, then that energy is going somewhere else. So it's just the the biomechanics of running are much less efficient, which means yes. you can't you can't go as fast. Um, so the 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 idea was always that drag wasn't important. So people would never pay attention to the shape or the clothes they were wearing or. Um, you know, only the fastest runners would have to worry about this, uh, this idea of having like a lead out or having a draft pack that they could use. And in the breaking two attempt, they made very good use of this. And there, there was some controversy around it as there is with any kind of attempt, but, uh, there was concern that the car that was leading that had the timer on it was contributing to drag reduction as well. So Mm -hmm. what is the magnitude of the aerodynamic drag that, uh, that we're seeing as runners, or not we, but uh, the Kipchogis <laughs> of the world who are running the, it. The two-hour marathoners. Yes. I, w- I would love to include myself in that. Um, <laughs> in fact, I am you know, part of the two-hour club in that I take at least two hours to do a marathon. So yes. <laughs> usually much, much more. But <laughs> the, the impact of aerodynamic drag, uh, I think in that article, it was around 40 to 50 watts was kind of the, the number that they were seeing. So this is like the world's fastest runners are only seeing 40 to 50 watts of aerodynamic drag, which, you know, at first pass, you think, okay, that's significantly lower than a cyclist. But what if you reduce that? Like, what if you took that component and reduced it to zero or cut it in half or did something with it? And we had touched on this briefly with the, um, the, the shoe analysis that we were looking at. And I'd done a whole bunch of back-of-the-envelope calculations. And I think we ended up with around 9 watts being the total amount that your shoes can contribute. Um, and that, based on these other numbers, actually looks like a, an overestimate. But again, these were just very rough approximations and a lot of assumptions. So I'm not surprised that it's not 100% accurate, but it does it falls in the ballpark. So the impact of aerodynamic drag, this is something that they've looked at, uh, or I guess no one has really looked at, but it's always been assumed that if you run in a V formation, kind of like birds fly, then you would be more efficient. So this was often done for races, but no one had really done the analysis. No one had been able to to do a good comprehensive analysis on what kind of drag savings you'd have. So in this uh, research paper that was referenced by Alex Hutchinson, the, he had, uh, the researcher had looked at different configurations. So if you have three, I believe it was three lead out runners in a line, um, two lead out runners and one lead out runner and then different positions of the trailing runner there was a solo runner no lead out runners and then the what they did was they had three lead out runners but in th- you had the runner in three different positions the following oh, okay. runner in three different positions okay. one was behind the center runner one was behind well, one of the side runners the left runner and one was between two of the runners so the 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 findings were generally that if you followed directly behind a runner in almost any configuration i believe it was pretty similar there wasn't much of a difference yes um where the big difference was was when you were in between the two riders so what's actually happening there is because and this actually relates 
quite closely to what we were talking about before. So if you've got this wake that's forming behind, you imagine it just being a solid surface where the air can't go in there. So you've got this beam or this uh, this solid shroud that follows behind a runner, all the air that's moving has to go around that and accelerate. So it's basically converging in between the two runners leading out, uh, which actually can make their own drag higher. But it uh, accelerates the air through this little channel in between. And now if you're the trailing runner, you're running in this high velocity area. So it actually makes your, your drag... Um, could have the effect of increasing drag for a lot of people. It was it was it was way more efficient than an unshielded runner. So there was a, it was much lower drag than than a runner with no leadouts runners in front of him or her. But it was certainly less efficient than following directly behind the runner. Yeah. So in that case, it was probably that the um, the runner was partially their body was partially extending into the wake that was provided by the other runners, um, and then yeah, there's some weird fluid dynamic stuff that goes on when you've got two objects near each other. But, uh, but in general, you would get that acceleration that would happen. And it would, at least compared to having a runner in the wake, it would contribute to a higher overall level of drag. Um, but like you said, it's probably still a reduction from, from the base. Yeah, it was, they, found, they found a 60, it looks like about a, a 60% reduction. Yeah, so 60% reduction for cyclists. I mean, that's massive, but that's also when 85% of your energy is going towards drag. Right. Uh, for a runner where you've got 40 watts of drag, that's um, 65% is still pretty significant. Like even a cyclist would be happy to get the 25 watt benefit. But as a runner, um, yeah, maybe it, it helps you maybe not linearly, uh, like a, a cyclist would, um, or I guess it's not really linear, but anyway, you know what I mean? Not as directly as a cyclist would feel, but, uh, yeah, the relationship, the relationship is very, is much more complex with running as Andrew said. And that's, that's really, that, that was the other challenge with studying this for runners. Um, one was, as Andrew mentioned that, uh, obviously at much lower speeds, the, uh, the magnitude of the effect is lower, but also the the relationship between okay so look you're saving some your your aerodynamic drag is reduced so what how how much faster do you go and that's um, that's a discussion that Alex gets into and it's it's a lot less straightforward than in cycling running is just way more complicated than cycling in general like understanding running power is very complicated cycling power is very straightforward um, so understanding the effects of this uh, reduction in aerodynamic drag on Ultimately, what you care about as a runner is how fast am I going? Um, or, you know, conversely, what, what, what sort of time do I need to run a specific distance? Um, that relationship is, is not well understood. And it's not even, you know, kind of the brightest minds studying that relationship don't have a really great handle on it. Uh, whereas with cycling, it's really straightforward. The one thing that we can probably say with a good amount of confidence, though, is that at a given speed, say you're not speeding up, but at a given speed, you're now saving that 25 watts because you're not putting it into aerodynamic drag. Mm -hmm. So you will have more in the tank later. So I know that the biomechanics are super complicated with accelerating or with going faster, but uh, if you are continuing at the same speed, not changing your biomechanics very much, then that would at least leave a little bit in the tank. So you would extend the time to exhaustion by some amount. That's uh, that's safe to say. You know, it's it's hard. It's very hard to quantify these things. But as a qualitative statement, in the, uh, a qualitative statement like this will make you a little bit faster or you'll save a little bit of energy. That's probably, you know, fairly safe to say. And from my own perspective, I know that running into a headwind, uh, it, it can be almost as frustrating as biking into a headwind. Yeah. So it's, you, you definitely feel it. It's not, 
not invisible, um, but it's uh, it's certainly something that could contribute, especially with these really high end efforts where the the record has come down by just a matter of single digit percents over the past couple decades. So it's um, yeah, it's it's a very small gains that they're looking for at this stage. So something like drafting is definitely an area that they can they can look into. And this is where some of the controversy comes about whether or not a human can break the two-hour record because the uh, the attempt for breaking two, they had the, uh, the lead-out where, um, or at least the initial attempt, they had the lead-out where they were switching every lap that they were doing on the, the race course in Italy. Right. And you've got fresh runners, which is not how a marathon works. Um, like you'll have people peel off and disappear because they've exhausted themselves for, you know, the 20 K and that's their entire purpose. But, um, but you don't get fresh people mid race. Uh, they were never, they were never trying to simulate a a marathon. Exactly. Right. They were just trying to see if if a human can run that distance and that, that speed aided. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was a different set of, uh, criteria. And they were very open about that. They weren't trying to break the marathon record. And and really, like if you're trying to get down to that level, like say you are trying to break the marathon record, the first thing, the first the lowest hanging fruit is to break it aided, and then you break it unaided. And they have now broken it aided, so it follows that the the next milestone will be somehow doing it unaided. Which, yeah, time wise, they're what a minute off. Doesn't seem yeah, like just much, over a minute but, off. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But when you're running a marathon at that level a minute is a long time so at that level of any sport yeah it's 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 uh, it's considerable uh one thing to consider too is in running sure the speeds are slower but the like uh, an upright human being is just about as an unaerodynamic shape as you can imagine um compared to a cyclist you know there's some things that you you can't hide as a cyclist obviously like legs and upper arms if we're talking time trial position uh, but, uh, you know, your torso is, can be hidden in clever ways by your head mostly, uh, and on your arms as well. Uh, but, a, well, an upright human when in, in, while running is, uh, is terribly inefficient aerodynamically, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the CDA that I calculated back calculated from their numbers was around 0.4 to 0.45, um, which is well, it's not as terrible as I thought. No. And that's what I thought. Like I saw it and I thought that doesn't seem right. And then I thought about it more and thought, uh, yeah, I guess most of your frontal area is still exposed. You're just saving the torso a little bit with the, the bike. So it's not unrealistic, but the uh, if if we're going for such small gains, this starts to bring out the question: like, why aren't we optimizing things like aerodynamic shoes that we talked about previously, or more aerodynamic clothing? Mm-hmm. Um, because the the cover picture in that article was a bunch of guys running with these singlets that are flapping in the wind, and these shorts that are you know inflating because well <laughs> they're getting lots of air off their shorts, and. Uh, there, there is some component like flapping objects are one of the most inefficient aerodynamic shapes you can have. The amount of drag on flags, this is actually something that's been studied with a surprising amount of detail, but the amount of drag on flags is very, very high. Um, which, so, I mean, that's one pet peeve that, uh, that marathoners are not running around in tight little uniforms. Um, so it's, it just, it seems like something that's a low hanging fruit. Um, uh, mm-hmm. But uh, that leads into another pet peeve of mine, which is when, you know, your local hockey team, say it's the Leafs or the Flames or whatever's in the uh, the playoffs, and 
everyone has these stupid flags hanging out their car windows and they're driving around with it. And I'm thinking like this is just <laughs> killing your gas mileage. Uh, so anyway, mini rant over. You got to support the team. <laughs> Ugh. But you know what's interesting in that in that um, I'm glad you brought that that picture up. I just scrolled to it. Uh, Kipchoge is in, actually in tight shorts. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Most of the rest of them, uh, and actually, well, in that they're case, they're all sacrificial lambs, so it doesn't matter what they're how hard they're. Working. In that case, um, the sacrificial lambs could be wearing something that's higher drag because essentially higher drag creates a larger wake. Um, so maybe maybe it is for the effect that uh, that they could be reducing the drag for Kipchoge a little bit more when they're wearing those pieces of clothes. Um, yeah, and he even had those that that tape on his uh, on his shins, the um, the aerodynamic tape that was on his on either side of his uh, of his shin as well. Oh, I'll have to take a closer look at that. Um, there was yeah. some there was some study. On, we we should talk about it on another episode. As well, because it's uh, it's kind of neat. Because uh, you know, obviously, your shin is typically vertical through the stride, um, and uh, obviously not very aerodynamically optimized. Yeah. Um, so excellent point. And this is something I'd actually played around with when I did my first Ironman. Um, just having some kind of aerodynamic tape to change the the vortex shedding and, and reduce the drag for a cylinder shape. So yeah, I'm looking at that image now, and it's. Um, it's interesting. So he is wearing tighter shorts. He still have does have a loose singlet. It's a little bit loose. It's not super flappy. Yeah. But uh, yeah, um, there's definitely some differences there. So at that level, definitely every little bit helps. Um, at higher levels, where uh, or sorry, lower levels, um, it would make a smaller difference. But um, but my my opinion is why give up an extra little bit of benefit if it doesn't really cost you anything. Um, sure. It may not make you go faster, but it can't hurt. Agreed, a hundred percent. One last thing I want to point out is that um, w- one of the uh, elements that uh, that Alex picked out of this study is that everyone wins when there's a draft back. So <laughs> that's to say that people who are who are leading out, who are being drafted, just by the virtue of having somebody on their on their tail, on their wheel, on their heels. Uh, they're also experiencing a little bit of a, of a drafting benefit. Um, can you talk about why that is? Andrew? Yeah, and uh, this is something that I had initially seen on a blog that I would really recommend. Uh, if anyone's interested in aerodynamics, definitely recommend looking at this. Um, so the acronym is FYFD or Fuck Yeah Fluid Dynamics. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's that that could not be more like of the blog that if I was to to try and figure out what kind of blog uh, Andrew would like reading, fuck yeah, <laughs> dynamics would be would be that. So it's actually something that um, well, talking to Sean Peterson, I know that he's he's referenced this in some of his fluid dynamics courses that he's teached before because um, it's written by a PhD student from or not student but graduate from I believe it was Cornell. Okay. Um, so she, she went through a really high, high level, like high end school, um, did, I think it was a PhD in like boundary layer flow and compressible, like high mock numbers. So basically like transonic or supersonic flows. I think it was that, but anyway, she's, um, she's focused her career on outreach and learning for people. So she had this blog where she would just scour the internet and look for really, really neat studies that were sometimes, you know, kind of like the Ig Nobel prizes where it's just science for the, the sake of 
turning heads, but also sometimes cool results come from it. But this this study, um, she's a former uh, NCAA level cyclist as well. So this study caught her attention where uh, they investigated the drag effects on a cyclist with having a camera car follow. And having the car less than five meters actually for like a 40, 40K time trial would provide a benefit of up to 10 seconds, I think. Wow. Um, it, was, it was somewhere in that ballpark. I can't remember the exact numbers. But uh, essentially what you're doing now is you're modifying the pressure behind the cyclist or behind the object that's moving forward. And as we discussed before with pressure drag, the it's both surfaces. It's the front surface that's typically the highest, but if you increase the pressure on the back surface, you can now reduce the drag of the, the forward object. So having this car behind a cyclist, it's like riding a wave where this mm. wave of pressure, this cushion or pillow of pressure pushes the cyclist forward. So you get the same effect when you're, when you're drafting someone, you actually make them faster as well. So listeners, next time you're doing a, a 40K time trial, um, which those of you who have done it, you know, you, you kind of get have a sense of what that feels like. Just imagine you're riding on a little pillow of, uh, of, of air. Maybe yes. that'll help the, uh, the mental, um, you know, dealing with the, the perception of effort. In that, with uh, a nice in that silk pillowcase and yeah. soft and cool and everything that you're not feeling at the time you're just finishing off a 40K time trial effort. Yep. Yeah, uh, so it's it's very interesting stuff. Um, there, aerodynamics. This is one of the reasons that it's, I guess, overwhelming for some people. Is just there's all these complex interactions that are going on and weird physics that happen at different stages and different velocities. But um, for for athlete relevant speeds, some of this stuff can actually have a really big impact. And even for runners, it's uh, it's it's significant. Um, it's arguably, I would say, the one time that cyclists don't benefit it is climbing hills. But I think that's more where there's a psychological carrot where you have someone to pace off right. of that's that's the help um but uh, but in general it is something very useful and it can be leveraged legally by a lot of different races so it's uh it, it shouldn't be ignored it shouldn't be something that you um, that you don't take advantage of if you can. Absolutely. And if you're just, uh, you know, tooling around and somebody jumps on your wheel and you're kind of grumpy that you're, you're doing all the work for them, uh, realize that, uh, they're actually helping you out a little, little bit, probably not as well, not probably certainly not as much as you're, hel you're helping them, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit, it's a win-win, even if the magnitude of the win is not equal. Yeah. And try giving them the little elbow flicks so that they lead out for a while too. Yeah, they take a turn. Yeah. Plus, I I feel like you know drafting is the you know what's what's the what's the expression that flattery is or no um, imitation is the highest form of flattery. That's it. So the, I I always turn that around in my head when somebody's drafting me is like drafting is the highest form of flattery. There you go. They want to be just like you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something something to make me feel better about doing you know uh, more work than I perceived I should be doing, especially in thirty degree weather and eighty percent humidity. Yeah, there was a guy who was on my on my tail for a little while today, and also like I always have to work harder when somebody's on my wheel. Like, oh, I was just I'm just on my my way home. I've got about you know another ten minutes of riding to do, and I'm just cooling down from a from a fairly hard ride and then somebody jumps on my wheel I'm like okay now i have to work hard again yeah got to do 110 percent ftp and that's it <laughs> yeah. uh yeah definitely big psychological impacts but uh <laughs> absolutely absolutely um good place to wrap up andrew i think so yeah it was it was fun to revisit this discussion because there's yeah there's 
information that's come out since we did the initial discussion. There were people who may not have heard it the first time around. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and there's if, if anyone wants to go back and listen to it, then feel free because I think it was uh, an interesting episode and they can cross-check to make sure that we made the same arguments in both cases <laughs> and that our, our message is consistent. But I think we were pretty good. So it's uh, yeah, very cool topic. I'm happy to talk about it much longer if uh, if anyone wants us to go into that level. Maybe we can do like a, um, a special subscriber only geek out about aerodynamics and, and talking about some of the different physics that, uh, yeah. that happen. That could be fun for sure. Um, <laughs> and especially fun. for those, yes. <laughs> well, fun for us. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, really, the big takeaway here for me is 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 folks, if you're if you're a triathlete. Especially if your bike's stronger than your than your than your swim, uh, and you're an age grouper when you're allowed to do this, take advantage because it's it's free speed and it's um it's yeah it's gonna it's gonna lower your time. You're gonna see a real benefit from this. And I'll I'll say as well, just keep safe while you're doing it. Like there's drafting and then there's going six centimeters off someone's wheel and then pulling out for a slingshot. Don't do that. Don't be don't be stupid about it. But you can definitely benefit a lot from it without being dangerous. Yeah, that's that's excellent advice. So, folks, uh, as always, thank you very much for spending some time with us and listening. Um, if you like the show, please do rate review us on iTunes or anywhere else that you, uh, you listen. And if you really like the show, we'll have a link to our Supercast fan support page uh, where you can support us financially. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>